an eon ago, we, we did, the Bible doesn't say that, we took a couple of verses, uh, a couple of things that we think the Bible says but doesn't say. Um, and this morning I'm going to come on to what, what the Bible doesn't actually say. Again, if you saw the video on Facebook, then you'll, you'll have a clue. But let me just start off and say that there's a word that you can use. It's just one word that you can use that will more than likely get your non-Christian, non-religious friends quoting scripture back at you. You're curious what that word might, might be. There's a good chance that if you say this word, your non-believing friends or your work colleagues will get all worked up and you'll quickly find yourself staring on the barrel of a chapter and verse gun. All right? And where one hit, you'll be on the floor and your friend or your colleague, they'll have metaphorically, they'll be blowing the, the smoke from the tip of their imaginary firearms. Job, job done. So, what's the word? It's close. Ish. Begins with S. And it ends in N. <laughs> Give it a big shout. It is sin. It is sin. If you call, so, I mean, you can call sin, you can refer a number of things to sin. You can, you can speak out another lifestyle that the Bible speaks out against. Or you can critique the belief system of another world religion. They're just two things which you could call sinful. In fact, if you, if you criticize any behavior uh, that isn't universally condemned by our present culture, then all you have to do is step back and wait to be verbally shot at. All right, that's, that's, that's where we're at right now. And, and here's the thing, here's the thing, what they, they will quote scripture. You won't be too long before somebody who doesn't have much use for the Bible at any other time in their life tries to quote from Matthew 7, verse 1. Do you know what that is? It's the bit where the Bible says, don't judge others. So you say that's sinful. Hey, the Bible says don't judge others. And that's the only bit of Bible they know. And that person that fired the quote in your direction, they'll have no idea where it's from in the Bible. And there's a reasonably good chance they'll have quoted it out of context. And here's the thing. Here's the important thing, that Jesus told his followers not to judge others is a myth. The idea that Jesus told his followers, i.e. us now, not to judge others is a myth. Let me explain why, because it's a, it's a widely believed spiritual urban legend that can't actually stand up to the actual words of Scripture. So for the next 20 minutes, I'm going to open that up and tell you why this is the case. Jesus didn't tell us that we should refuse to judge or to not call something sin. Jesus actually makes loads of judgments on things, and he asks us to do the same. And there are costly consequences, I think, of, of the spiritual kind when we don't do the same. Not only in the lives of those who refuse to judge, but also in the lives of those who don't get their sins pointed out. It's, it's interesting, this. I can, I can kind of feel you, you, re, you want to know where I'm going with this. You're, kind of, you're stepping down a politically correct uh, path here, Mark, and careful you don't deviate off, otherwise you might offend somebody. I'm going to get to that in a little while. But, but keep your minds open and your hearts open and your ears open, and we're going we're to get to what I'm talking about. 
So let's turn in your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 7. So I'll switch your Bibles on, uh, tap them, open them up, get to Bible, uh, get to verse 7 in Matthew. Okay, I'm going to give you just a few moments to find that. And I'd like you to keep that, that page open, or I'd like you to keep that uh, verse open, because we're going to refer back to it time and again. All right. So let's, um, let's read together what Jesus has to say in Matthew 7, uh, verses 1 to 6, actually. Um, and the astonishing thing is, as I've just said, that even as you read these words of Jesus, and this is Jesus saying what you're about to hear, you might still be persuaded by the myth of not judging. Because it's so ingrained into our politically correct culture. So ingrained. So let's go ahead. Let me read it. Do not judge others. So let me just stop there and pause. So today's talk is, the Bible doesn't say that, do not judge others. Well, it's a lie, clearly, because it does. Straight away, it says, do not judge others. So what I'm actually approaching today's sermon about is, is what's the context of that? And what does it actually mean? Because when people fire it at you, when you've called something a sin or you've called something out, they're actually taking it massively out of context. So let me continue. Do not judge and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste time on what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They'll trample the pearls, then they'll turn and attack you. And, and even though I'm going to keep with this more traditional versions that you might have just read in your Bibles, um, I'm going to read that again from the message translation because I think it puts it in a really interesting way. Okay, ready? Here we go. From verse 1, don't pick on people. Jump on their failures. Criticize their faults. Unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit is a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you, when your face is distorted by contempt? Is this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part? Wipe away that ugly sneer off your own face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. Don't be flip with the sacred. Banter and silliness give no honor to God. Don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans. In trying to be relevant, you are only being cute and inviting sacrilege. Interesting, isn't it? Now, in neither of these versions, it's the thing I really want to point out to you. Neither of these versions did Jesus say, don't pick on, criticize, or judge others, followed by a full stop. Didn't, did it? If you look in your Bibles again, there's not a full stop there. There's not an exclamation point. He said... Do not judge others, followed by, and this is really important, a clarification of what type of judgments to make, when to make them, and how to make them. Okay, we're going to open that up. So this Matthew 7 passage, when we read it in context, is not a command not to judge at all. It's actually a pretty strong warning against judging incorrectly, with bad motives and bad intentions. 
Jesus, he goes on to tell us not to give sacred or some versions say holy things to dogs or to throw our pearls before pigs. Now, I don't know how you think about this, okay? But I reckon that that's a pretty, pretty hard thing to do without first making a few judgments concerning who exactly is a dog and who is a pig. It's, it's pretty hard, isn't it? Same, it's, it's a judgment. It's making a judgment call. It's separating things. The same principle is used a few verses later in Matthew 7 from verse 15. It says, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce, bad, uh, does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. I wonder if somebody could just put this table over here for me. That would be great. I really need a water, and I don't want to be walking backwards and forwards. Thank you. So in these verses... Jesus is asking us to carefully inspect the spiritual fruit of anyone who claims to speak for God. Okay? He says that we need to evaluate what they say with how they live. Rejecting the, thank you very much, rejecting those who who bear bad fruit and listening to those who produce good fruit. So the question you've got to ask of people is does what what comes from their mouth Line up with how they are living their lives. Saying one thing and and doing another, or hopefully in this case, saying one thing and doing that. And I say it again. It seems to me that Jesus is asking us to judge others. But if this is the case, and, uh, and we're all reading our Bibles correctly and regularly, reading what Jesus is actually saying, then why do so many of us Why do so many of us think that Jesus doesn't want us to judge? It's a rhetorical question. I'll try and answer that because I think there's a couple of reasons. Number one is possibly a failure to understand Jesus' words in context. I feel like I've said that three times already. It's so important. When you're reading the Bible and you're reading the word of God, read it in context. Maybe we need to all read our Bibles a little bit more fully. Reading them, reading the Bible for the sake of reading the Bible and getting the word into your spirit, into your soul. Rather than maybe relying on the the piecemeal word of the day as a way of reading scripture. Now, that's good. I don't, obviously, word of the day is great. Better than nothing. But it should be an encouragement to go ahead and read it more. Not, that's all I need for today. I'm going to move on now with my life. And the second thing is a natural tendency to interpret Ancient words through the filter of, of our modern day culture. We we're guilty of doing that a lot. Um, here's, I want, okay. In our modern day culture, one of the highest traits is something called tolerance. Okay? Seems that we're reminded constantly by our politicians that we live or should be living in a tolerant multicultural society. And, and I, I did actually consider talking about tolerance and making that the main topic uh, this morning. So I might return to that in a bit more detail another Sunday. 
But I'll highlight this morning a few points about tolerance because when you look at tolerance, it connects to judgment quite a lot. So, so tolerance, I think, I think, has actually changed in definition over the years. You may or may not, disagree, may or may not agree with me. But today, I think it's got a four-stage definition. Okay, this is the four-stage definition. Number one, allowing others to believe and live in ways that we don't agree with, followed by, number two, supporting their right to do so. Number three, refusing to judge their viewpoints and actions as either being right or wrong. Finally, ending in four, accepting their lifestyle and beliefs as a legitimate truth. So what has led us in, what this has led us to in most areas is that like criticizing someone's beliefs or moral choices is now considered a major social blunder. It's looked upon as a sure sign of arrogance, or in fact, ignorance, and quite often bigotry. And for those who know what Jesus said, the words, do not judge, they know that he said that, and that really seals the deal when we're talking about tolerance. And so to those who hold this modern-day definition of tolerance as the highest of ideal, it moves judging others from being politically incorrect to being flat-out offensively wrong. I, I, this is, I can feel you just, you are taking in what I'm saying here. You are, this is awesome because I'm touching one of those buttons, aren't I? This is cool. Okay. I think there's a major problem with uh, their thinking in this matter. Let me remind you that this is removing Jesus's words from their context. As I've said, Jesus not only told his followers to make judgments in certain matters, but he gives us instructions concerning how to judge properly. Now, I need you to hear something really well, okay? And I I don't want you to take away an incorrect view of me this morning, okay? So you might even need to note this down and say, Mark is not this, all right? Okay, don't stop listening because you now think I'm I'm all of a sudden Mr. Intolerant, all right? I'm not. I'm definitely not saying an emphasis on tolerance is a bad thing. When it's properly understood and worked out, it's a great thing. I'm going to repeat that for the recording. It's a great thing. All right? Tolerance is a necessary part of living in any diverse, multicultural society. I agree with the politicians. It's also a trait that every Christ follower, all of you in here this morning that have given your lives to Christ, we should be working towards developing. The Bible actually, in the book of, uh, the book of Colossians, specifically instructs us to be tolerant of one another. Uh, And actually, in that case, ironically, within the church. That's capital C, big church. The problem is, this is the problem, the problem is that tolerance no longer fully means what it used to mean. And we're living in this weird, odd transition from one thing to another. A little bit like this elongated journey from the 1970s from imperial measurements to metric. It's just kind of weird, isn't it? Like my kids, uh, 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 things are in kilometers and in kilos and, 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 and all that. And, and I, I, my things are still in miles and feet and inches. Yet, um, I, I, you know, my generation before me, it's probably in yards and they're probably still measuring stones. And, and do you know what I mean? I mean, when I was a kid, I grew up and five pence pieces were massive and they still had to, uh, one shilling on them and ten pence pieces are two shillings. So we've had this 
elongated, th- I, mean, I was gutted when they got rid of a quarter of spice. If you're from Yorkshire, can I have a quarter of spice? That's sweets for those of you who are not from Yorkshire. Um, uh, I don't know if there's anywhere else. But, um, and they had to, can I have 100 grams of, of sweets? So we, we've got this weird thing where tolerance is being, is being slowly contorted into meaning something else. And that's what makes it incredibly difficult. Because tolerance used to mean granting others the freedom to be wrong. Or to put it another way, actually, the freedom to have a different view than you do. The freedom to have a different view than you. But neither of you have to accept the other person's point of view. You don't have to agree. But you can, in fact, disagree gracefully. And carry on living your life with no pressure to conform. It didn't, didn't preclude critique and criticism. Actually, it simply helped to offer an evaluation of one another's views in a spirit of grace and humility. Now, just to help us pull out what tolerance means a little bit more, uh, I want to show a video by a guy called Dr. William Lane Craig. Top. Philosopher, philosopher, top theologian, and an amazing apologetic. It's only a minute and a half long as this video, but he does a really great job of expanding what we, should, what we used to mean and what we now mean by tolerance. The traditional understanding of tolerance is that while I may disagree with what you say, nevertheless, I will defend to the death your right to say it. The problem is that the understanding of tolerance in our politically correct society has now changed. Today, tolerance means I dare not disagree with what you say, lest I be branded bigoted and intolerant for daring to do so. But this new understanding of tolerance is logically incoherent when you think about it. Think about it. If you tolerate a view then the very concept of tolerance presupposes that you think the tolerated view is not true. Otherwise, you wouldn't tolerate it. You would agree with it. You can only tolerate a view that you regard as false. So the very concept of tolerance entails a commitment to truth. The Christian is is committed to both truth and to tolerance. For we believe in him who said, not only I am the truth, but also love your enemies. The correct basis of tolerance is not relativism, but love. Isn't it good? So today's definition of tolerance is one that affirms everyone is right. No matter what they believe or what they do. And this new definition of tolerance has become so widespread that even many Christians believe it's inappropriate to critique or criticize the religious beliefs or moral standards of others. I think we're faced with a big challenge, and, 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 and that is that it's extremely difficult to get outside the values and viewpoints of our day. We have this kind of herd instinct. If you doubt me, you just have to look back 10 years and see what was cool or hip or indeed sick. Just have a look 10 years and see and compare it to today. If we check out any group of young people, actually, over the years, we'll find that each generation had their own distinctive uh, ways to dress, similar hairstyles, similar musical tastes, and things that made them part of a group. 
We don't have to look that far to see how hipster our country has got over the past few years. What with all the beards and the boots. And it seems that even our prominent worship leaders in the charismatic church don't look the part unless they're dressed in double denim with pointy leather shoes. If you've been to conferences, you know what I'm talking about. You've got to get in double denim and pointy leather shoes. And actually, very few of us can, can actually challenge this herd instinct, this spiritual herd instinct of not judging others is one that we find ourselves being strongly shepherded into. And if we follow the crowd on this spiritual myth of not judging others, it will, I think, lead us down a trail of tragic consequences. And, and I thought carefully about how strong I was going to use words there. It will have tragic consequences. This is why, because it simply puts us at odds with Jesus. And I don't want to be at odds with Jesus. We'll be defying logic and we'll be propagating, perhaps quite innocently, that S word, sin. The politically correct thinking that we have no right to judge the beliefs and moral standards of others is based on uh, another widely held view. And here it is. It's the conviction that there are no spiritual truths and no universal moral standards. And this conviction basically says... That, that two drastically opposing viewpoints or standards can be both true at the same time. And the problem is that according to the rules of logic and of reasoning, that can't happen. In fact, it, it's an idea that I don't think is accepted anywhere else. Um, it seems rather surprisingly that it's only in the spiritual and moral realm that we buy into this unreality. Let me give you some ideas. Imagine an engineer who argues, uh, where are we at? Imagine an engineer who argues that his calculations don't matter as long as they work for him. Very few of us, I think, would drive over a bridge that he designs. <laughs> or, or imagine that your doctor gives you a handful of pills and tells you to take whichever ones feel right. In every area of life, we can test outcomes. We know that some things work, and we know some things don't work. Is that true? It is. It's truth. Some answers are correct, and some answers aren't correct. Again, it's a truth. Okay? The belief that spiritual and moral realms operate differently than any other, I think, is an unsupported leap into the dark. It's, it's, it's a basically a strange journey into an Alice in Wonderland world where, where fanciful thinking and wishful thinking just replaces reality and common sense. If you take these things to the nth degree, you, you get to a point. Um, and Jesus here in Matthew 7 isn't forbidding us from making judgments. Okay? It, we, we've, we, we would have no objective way to distinguish between truth and error. But, but Jesus tells us how to judge. He tells us how to just precisely because some beliefs are true and some are false. <clears throat> some actions are right and some are plainly wrong. Some people might defend their wrong view of tolerance by pointing to uh, this story that concerns Jesus. And it's about the woman caught in adultery. And that's in John 8. And it's the woman, she's about to be stoned to death because of her adulterous life. 
and, and, and it can be pointed out that when the religious leaders brought the woman to Jesus, he stopped them in their tracks by insisting that the person without sin cast what? Cast the first stone. And you might come to that statement in verse 11 of that chapter and think this proves the point. It says, after all her accusers left, Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. And so some people might end up saying something like this. I stand in the tradition of Jesus. I don't judge people. One problem with this defense is that Jesus did judge her. Jesus said to the woman, did say to the woman, he did say, neither do I condemn you. But then he also said, and this is the important bit, go and leave your life of sin. That's a judgment. It's a judgment. Can't get around it. Can't go under it. You can't go over it. It's a judgment. He didn't ignore her adultery. He didn't say, I'm personally uncomfortable with it, but as long as it works for you, that's okay. He didn't say that. He called the behavior what it is. He said it's a sin. Maybe the real difference here is the way that Jesus confronted her. His statement was both full of grace and truth. And he warned her that she needed to make some serious changes in her life and do it the right way. If we refuse to label the behaviors that Jesus called sin, sin, I think we're disagreeing with Jesus, not following Jesus. The proper course of action, I think, is not to stop judging others. It is, in fact, to judge properly in line with the standards and principles that Jesus taught. Okay, now, having listened to all I've said, some of us need to be very careful. Some of us who understand that it's okay to judge might go about it in ways that do more harm than good. So it's really important that we look more carefully about what Jesus and the Bible actually says about this thing called judging and what it takes to get it right. Because when you leave here today and go back to work or school tomorrow, whatever else you're doing, I need you to know, I need to know that I've empowered you to handle things correctly and and generate and present a positive view of you and your faith. So let me go through some principles. The first principle of right judgment is to remember that the standard we use to judge others will be the standard that God uses to judge us. So let's go back to what Jesus says in Matthew 7 verses 1 and 2. Do not judge others and you will not be judged for you'll be treated as you judge as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And at first reading, this looks like that if we overlook or ignore the sins of others, we can sin as much as we like. This isn't it when you read that on the first, first reading through. And unfortunately, this can be an underlying assumption of those who don't want to judge anyone or anything. What this actually means is, what it really means is that we need to judge with extreme caution and clarity. And that leads us on to the second principle of right judgment, and that is to deal with your own stuff first. I wanted to put a stronger word in there, but I can't because we're in a church. You've got to deal with your own stuff first. We have to deal with our own sins before we start worrying about everybody else's. Listen to Matthew 7 from verse 3 and 5. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye 
when you can't see past the log in your own eye. Hypocrite. I love the way it just says, hypocrite. <laughs> First get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Now, here's, here's where it gets a little bit confusing, and this, this leads us on to this, this point I'm about to make here. It doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. All right? If that were the case then Apostle Paul from, from the Bible would have had to have kept quiet. And it says this about himself. In Romans 7, verses 19 and 20, and I'll read it from the message again, it says this about himself. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best actions. I obviously need help. How many agree with that? I obviously need help. I realize I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I don't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. And I think we've all got struggles like that. I would presume every single one of us, to some degree. So Paul is given us an idea that we don't need to be perfect because he decided not to keep quiet, and he was bold in his confrontation of his own sinful behavior. A third principle to right judgment is to make sure that judgments match God's judgments. Okay, The myth that God doesn't want us to judge puts us in an unfortunate position of disagreeing with God <clears throat> when he calls something sin and we're unwilling to do the same. And there's another mistake. In fact, it's the opposite of this same coin. It's when we judge others over issues which God doesn't consider to be a problem. When we judge others over issues that God doesn't particularly consider to be a problem. And I'm sure you're all thinking of them right now in your head. They're all push-button issues, and I'm not going to address them. Some... <laughs> Of the harshest criticisms you hear about people, and particularly, I think, other Christians to other Christians, come in areas where the Bible doesn't really have much to say on the subject. There are loads of areas where the Bible does give us general principles without spelling out specific applications. Okay? But these general principles, can, they, they lead us quite happily then to freedom in our behavior and thinking. But unfortunately, it also leaves us with some areas for potential judgment. We put ourselves in dangerous company when we judge others in an area where God hasn't actually spoken definitively. We become like those Pharisees. Those Pharisees are religious and legalistic people that we hear about in the New Testament. And they obsessed about things that God really didn't care about while missing out on the things he cares most about. Quite possibly, anything left out of the Bible was left out for a reason. I don't think God makes mistakes. When we add rules, regulations, standards, or anything else we wish he'd included, <laughs> then we judge those who fail to follow our additions. And that puts us at odds with God. Proverbs 30 verse 6 says, Don't second guess him. He might take you to task and show up your lies. It's <laughs> good, isn't it? Another principle for right judgment is to judge Christians and non-Christians by different standards. 
Do you hear that? Judge Christians and non-Christians, non-believers by different standards. Judging non-Christians by Christian standards puts the cart before the horse. Even if we convince non-Christians to live by Christian standards or we successfully put into law Christian standards, if we don't help bring these people into relationship with Jesus, all we've done is populate hell with nicer and more moral people. I'm going to read it again because that's, I need you to hear that. If we convince non-Christians to live by Christian standards or successfully put into law Christian standards, if we don't help bring these people, this is the important bit, into a relationship with Jesus, then all we've done is populate hell with really nice people. This doesn't mean, this is important, this doesn't mean we can't call out their sin. It doesn't mean they get to disobey God without any kind of consequences. We're asked where we're tasked to share the gospel of Jesus Christ after all. Each and every one of us is tasked with sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want you to answer, but when was the last time you shared the good news of Jesus with anyone? It's not a condemnatory statement. It's just one to prompt you and to push you. It means that we're supposed to leave their judgment to him and focus on ourselves and the family of God when it comes to upholding God's standards. Okay, the next principle for right judgment I want to share with you is to remember that we should never condemn anyone. That is God's prerogative. Our goal is to evaluate and protect or discern and restore depending on those people involved. That's beautiful. Discern and restore, not put down and trample upon. That's our job, to take those who have stumbled, to get hold of their hand and to help them to their feet again and even to let them lean on you as they walk until they're back under their own steam, never to trample and condemn. And when it comes to spiritual leaders, good dear, the purpose of, of, of our judging is to evaluate and protect. And actually, I think I'm going to say this, right? It's not just church leaders. I think we're all, if we're Christians, we're all leaders, spiritual leaders in some arena of life. All right? Ch- church leadership makes up less than 2% of the Christian population of the world. That's over 2 billion people. That leaves a lot of people left over that actually are out there in work, in schools, in colleges, or whatever, needing to be a spiritual leader in their arena of life. So we've got a responsibility. Um, my, my judgment is to evaluate and protect, and it's to keep wolves in sheep's clothing from raiding the flock. So a leader's message, actions, and spiritual fruit, I think, a fair game for judging. But and this is a massive but. Before you all come and give me a good kick in, a good judgment kick in. It must be done according to the principles of judgment I've just talked about. All right? And in the case of our fellow Christians, we've got a responsibility to hold up one another spiritually accountable. We've got a responsibility. But the purpose is to either restore the one caught in the web of sin or to make sure that they are using well and often the gifts and talents that God has given them to lift them out of sin and to lift them up. 
in, in a little word play to make my point, you might even say that when we hold someone accountable, we give an account of them round a table. No, that not work. Okay, let me, I'm saying that because relationship happens in the same room. Relationship happens when we're together face to face talking as brothers and sisters. As much as I love it, relationships don't happen over the internet. Relationships don't, don't mature and develop on social media. Relationships happen when you're one on one around a table, maybe having a coffee together from Cielos, maybe. Um, that's when we hold each other accountable. All right, so you can take that and throw it in the bin. Now, um, let me get to my last final principle for, for right judgment. And, and that is one that we're not, it shouldn't actually be last, but, but should be first in all our encounters with others. And this is, this is it, that we should judge others with grace. Judge others with grace. When our judgments lead us to personal attacks, bitterness, or even raging anger, then something's gone wrong. The, the, the old cliche is probably right, hate the sinner and love the sinner. Maybe you've wondered how it's possible to hate one without hating the other. Well, they seem tied together, but I want to say this. Here's a way to do it. Most of us do it to ourselves every single day. Most of us. We don't have a problem acknowledging and resenting and hating our own sins that we find ourselves in. But most of us still find a way to love ourselves. Most of us. The concept of self-love is so natural but so deeply ingrained that Jesus used it as a basis for how we're to love others. When we have a view of ourselves as God sees us, which is one of love, that cliche makes sense. Jesus said we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that includes our enemies, those who are promoting a sinful agenda. And when it comes to judging them or anyone, God wants us to judge in the same way we both judge and love ourselves. Which is boldly calling sin, sin, while responding with an abundance of grace and mercy. I, I don't, I'm going to just look slightly off script here. I don't like the way we do politics in our country. It demonstrates to us an adversarial culture. And when you think about Brexit and you think about all the other hot button topics like gay marriage, abortion, things like that. Um, we, we forget how to talk to each other. We, we're an adversarial culture that Put somebody on one side while I'm on the other. And, and we've lost the art of conversation, I think. I'm generalizing. We've lost the art of healthy debate where I can tolerate your view, but I don't accept it or agree with it. It doesn't mean I stop loving you. You just have a different view to me. Even when it comes down to small things like this, well, if you get an Android phone, I'm going to defriend you on Facebook. <laughs> Now, it's said in jest, but it actually reflects something. It reflects a truth that I'm not allowed to have a different political opinion than you. And all of a sudden, I'm not your friend. You don't want to know me. You think I'm the scum of the earth. I, I implore you, and I, am, I 
completely challenge myself. Let's learn to love one another despite our differences and our different way of thinking. Let's do that. All right, I'm going to step out and say this. It's on the record. I actually am against gay marriage. I'm against the redefinition of marriage as as it has been done. And I think the biblical view of marriage is the right one. There are some people in here who don't agree with that. But I love you. You're my brother and my sister. And we can still dialogue and we can still talk. And our view of that is not going to jeopardize our salvation. But what would be great is that we don't all sit in the same room with the big elephant staring at us. But actually we're, we're, we're open enough to go, well, actually I stand here. Where do you stand? Great. Well, let's, let's have a conversation. Not necessarily one that is there to convince, to turn to our side, but one where the debate is healthy and good and well. Let us be a people that do that. And I, I actually extend that to social media. <laughs> Don't become a little ninja warrior, little keyboard ninja warrior, should I say. Just accept that people have a different of opinion. And look, I, I, I think that not having a tradition, I don't think that not having a biblical, what I term as a biblical view of marriage, makes you not a Christian. I don't think that at all. I think it has larger consequences for us and the church and our theology. But I, I'm going to love you and sit with you and talk with you and see what happens. And there are other issues I could talk about. I could talk about abortion. I could talk about Brexit. I could talk about all those things. I want to say this. I want to say don't just because I'm a believer assume that I'm a socialist. See, immediately you've put me in a, you possibly put me in a, in a, in a basket over here. I've never said I was a conservative. I just said I'm not particularly a socialist. So I guess I'm just sharing these things to, to say to you that, we can still talk and we can still love and we can still have a conversation. Let's address those elephants in the room when we're together and, and understand that we can go on with life and be friends and care and love. Yeah? I hope, I hope this morning I've, I've helped put to bed the myth that Christians shouldn't judge. We can and we should. We just need to make sure that we're judging things in the right way. If we judge, we miss out on truth. If we refuse to judge, sorry, we miss out on truth. If we judge inappropriately, we pile extra judgment on ourselves. Judgment actually can be dangerous on both ends, so tread carefully. Um, But this doesn't mean you shouldn't take the steps. This is the big responsibility we have as mature Christians. It's a little bit like, it's a I love it that Sarah mentioned this earlier. It's a little bit like that nuclear fuel at a power plant. It can bring great benefit if handled correctly, extract a high price if ignored, or hurt everyone if handled inappropriately. So as we leave here this morning, remember this. God judges us and he forgives us in the same way that we judge and forgive others. And remember too, 
that we will all face his judgment someday. So let's live our lives in a way that honors Christ. And if we do, we've got no worries concerning judgment we'll face or the forgiveness indeed that we'll receive and have received because of the death of Christ on the cross. We can depend on both God's righteous judgment and his merciful forgiveness. Can we stand to our feet and I'm just going to pray this prayer. I found this online. It's a prayer for the chronic judger. I'm going to read it and say amen at the end of it. Lord, why is it that we humans like to judge each other? You know, I make comments on almost every aspect of life. I comment on the weather, on my neighbours, on my work colleagues, on my bosses, and on our politicians. And I listen to the comments of others and often judge them too harshly. Lord, I may not pull out a bat, but I know how to use words that will bruise. And I'm an expert in helping others join in the abuse. You can say this as if this is you saying it. Forgive me, Lord, when I don't listen. When I think I know more than I do, and I do more harm than I'll ever know. Help me to be patient, to consider my attitudes, my thoughts, my actions. Help me to understand your call to serve others without judging those whom I am actually serving. Amen. In this house, we are real. But we also make mistakes. And when we do, we make sure we say sorry. We give second chances to anyone And we also have lots of fun. In this house, we definitely forgive. We also do loud. We give the best hugs. We are family. And in this house, that means we we love. love.